0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Over the past three years, the 11 states that comprise the American West have been in a state of simultaneous drought, more severe than any similar period going back to the late 1800s. And this situation really reached its zenith in the spring of 2021, when 90% of the West was experiencing higher than historic dryness, and a full third of the West was in the most intense state of drought, which is characterized by widespread crop and pasture losses and shortages of water and reservoirs, streams and wells. But oh, what a difference a few months makes. A long series of atmospheric rivers over this winter and spring have brought deluge after deluge of rain and snow. And so for the first time in years, more of the West is right now in an abnormal state of wetness than dryness. But among climate researchers who are focused on the West, there is broad agreement that it would be really foolish right now to believe that we don't have to worry about water anymore. Over the coming decades, we're going to have some wet years like this, but we'll also likely be facing increasing periods of dryness like the one we seem to be coming out of. There's actually a lot we can do to adapt to that likely future, but we really have to start now. And to that end, Felicia Marcus has a proposal. She would like to see stakeholders across the West come together to examine forest management, meadow and wetland restoration, and agricultural practices that with a tweak here and a policy change there, can provide multiple benefits for climate and water resilience. Felicia Marcus is a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program. She's an attorney, a consultant, and a member of the Water Policy Group, which comprises water sector experts who have been decision makers and trusted advisors within governments and international bodies. Marcus also recently served as the chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board, and she's the author of a recent policy report that describes the vast potential of nature-based solutions for protecting access to water across the West. Felicia Marcus, welcome.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Felicia, you are a longtime Californian, a native of Southern California, and a transplant to Northern California. And California has always been prone to drought years and pluvial years, and then more drought years. But was there something that felt tangibly different about this latest long drought to you?
1: Well, definitely. I mean, this—it it depends on how you look at it. We could have been in a 10-year drought punctuated by a couple of wet-ish years in 2016 and 2017, kind of normal uh, in 2019. And then all of a sudden we were plunged back again into the second worst drought in recorded history in California in just a few years uh, with increasing temperatures. And so the extremeness of the rapidity with which the second one came on took everyone rather by surprise. So yes, it feels... It feels very different. It's not unpredictable. It's not completely unprecedented. But these last two have been a doozy, to be sure. And often
0: when California's in drought, there are other places in the West that are not. These parts of our country operate or have historically operated separately from one another to some extent. But this was this period where this last few years were just the entire West was really feeling it.
1: Well, yeah, and unprecedented heat waves, if you even think about the Northwest getting over 100 degree temperature for multiple days in a row all the way up through Canada, it has really shocked the senses of people all across the West, not just the Southwest this time. I mean, I think we've had a benefit in California of being cushioned by the Colorado River system having the two largest reservoirs in the nation like Powell and Lake Mead, but that's coming to an end with 23 years of drought on the Colorado River system. And so I think everybody's quite awake in California and uh, water agencies in Southern California are on speed to adapt.
0: And in these last few months, we've been blessed with a lot of rain and snow. I think we can, we should celebrate that for sure. But are we out of the woods on this stuff?
1: Well, absolutely not, but I like the way you put it. We should celebrate every raindrop and every snowflake that doesn't end up flooding somebody out because you know, droughts are very inconvenient and painful, but floods kill people. So it's a, they call it a weather whiplash, but it's something we have to get ready for under climate change because the, the predictions are with only a few degrees Fahrenheit temperature rise, we get more of our precipitation, even if it's the same amount as rain, rather than snow, which means we end up with more flooding in the spring, but we end up with a deficit of snowpack, which is really critical to us, the largest single storage reservoir we all have as it melts out over the spring and the summer and refills the reservoirs, replenishes the springs uh, and the rivers, and can actually percolate into the groundwater basins at a pace they can absorb. But we also uh, have to deal with what's you know known as aridification, where we're just likely to get drier and, and have more frequent and drier dry. So uh, there's no time like the present to so be much more mindful of how we steward every drop of water from the top of the watershed on down to our groundwater basins.
0: You mentioned groundwater. I think that's really important. It's a good segue into what we're talking about today, because a lot of time we think about water Just in terms of streamflow and reservoir levels, we might think in terms of snowpack. A lot of people are familiar with the idea that snowpack is sort of this bank where the water is and we can draw out of it very slowly. But groundwater is this really important and often ignored part of this puzzle, isn't it?
1: Well, no, absolutely. I mean, this past year and the United Nations level was the year of groundwater making the invisible visible. But we've been drawing it down at a pace far beyond what nature replenishes to the tune of two to three million acre feet a year. I mean, so much so that the ground has subsided so much that we've lost some potential storage space as the ground compacts, but also that infrastructure has buckled. Floods are going to be worse because we've lost some of our flood control, the height of our levees and our canals. I will tell you that San Diego doesn't have much of a groundwater basin because of their geology, and that's why they're spending so much more than other areas in California on expensive desal facilities and on much higher levels of treatment for wastewater because they don't have a place to put lesser-treated wastewater or stormwater capture, whereas in the San Gabriel Valleys in Orange County and in LA County, they're recapturing as much stormwater and getting as much recycled water into the ground as they can as a hedge against the more frequent and drier dries that we're going to be seeing.
0: You're suggesting that we could better preserve through nature-based solutions, which are also sometimes called natural working land solutions?
1: No, exactly. It depends on where you're talking about In different Many states refer to it as natural working lands rather than nature-based solutions. If we steward our forests better, we can retain more of that snowpack by letting more of it hit the ground and yet shading it so it doesn't melt out early. We can take out some of the biomass, not willy-nilly. It's not just taking out trees, but taking out the excess growth foliage that's happened because we haven't maintained our forests. They're not in a natural state. Many of them are in a, a state where either a smoky bear was too successful and we oversuppressed the natural fire regime or where they have been commercially logged and replanted at a much more dense level than a natural forest. So as a result, where in nature uh, lightning strikes and others might cause a fire and it would race across the forest floor and leave your larger scale trees, we now have a what's called a fuel ladder of built up excess foliage which allows those fires to then reach the crowns of the bigger trees and burn them up in conflagrations that are now uh, greater in scale than fossil fuels in terms of emitting carbon. So. If we manage our forests back to a more natural state, we will soak up less of the water that does fall on useless useless foliage. We will protect these larger trees that we need desperately for carbon sequestration.
0: You've written that this is likely the most immediate way to start using a nature-based solution to protect water because... That's where the funding is and is going to be in coming years. Unpack that for me.
1: Well, I appreciate you picking that up. The fact is that the money is going to forest restoration because while there are multiple benefits to all of the nature-based restoration, when it comes to forest, you get this double whammy of giant-sized public benefits that any politician can see. (laughs) And one of them is avoided carbon emissions because of these outsized wildfires. But it's also because these forest fires obviously threaten life and limb. I mean, you talk about compelling public policy. And so we're seeing large amounts of money uh, going into it. So it is the place to start. And I think when we can start building comfort with doing more of the nature-based solution work, it will be easier to make arguments that now we need to do more meadow restoration. And then you can also work on agricultural land practices which require a little more work because you have to do them every year. I I really do think the forests are a very dramatic and important place to start because there's there's money going there.
0: But what does that really mean? Like what are we actually talking about? I think, you know, a lot of people remember Donald Trump talking about how Finland rakes its (laughs) forests to prevent fires, which is A, not quite what happens there, and B, it was really good fodder for thousands of Finns who responded to that funny statement by mockingly posting photos of themselves in their forests with rakes. Um, So I I imagine that's not what you mean. But what are the practices that do work for both preventing these fires and then, by consequence, also helping make sure that we're retaining more water in these forests?
1: Well, thank you for asking that. This is a very important caveat on it. It's not just taking out trees willy-nilly because they soak up water. And there are folks who would Argue that in some places. It's really about looking at the natural landscape and trying to recreate what was once there. So you're working with what nature would do if left to its own devices. And so that means taking out underbrush and growth that is far greater than a natural forest in that particular location would provide. But it's it's not that hard for scientists to think about what was the natural forest here before we started stocking them artificially with trees and, and making them into tree farms. So it, it takes some expertise, it takes some historical snooping, and it takes some experimentation.
0: And one of the challenges with this as a tactic for protecting water is quantification. It's It's kind of impossible to know for certain what the natural landscape once did. And then it's an even bigger challenge, I think, to adequately estimate how much water a forest can hold. There's just so many moving parts. But this is one of the things that you've said is really, really important. You've called for better quantification tools.
1: Well, we definitely need better quantification and more work. There's probably a little more work on forests than there is on the other landscapes, Uh, but there's a need for better quantification just so that we make sure that the restoration practices that we use work. And that is a process. It'll be a multi-year process of experimentation, taking our best guess, but then monitoring what goes on. There's some really important work happening in the the Yuba Basin up in California where they're doing some of this forest restoration work in a consortium of uh, tribe, local environmental group, the Yuba Water Agency, the Forest Service, uh, the California Air Resources Board, and other agencies that are putting money into doing what they hope to be the first fully treated watershed in California. And part of that task, and there was funding for it, is to do all kinds of monitoring and measurement, both of sequestration and of water benefits. The National Forest Foundation is doing some really interesting forest and Meadow restoration in the Gunnison that they'll be able to have some measurement of. They've also, as as have other entities, done forest restorations where they haven't had the funding to do the monitoring, which is part of why I called for it. But I don't think we need to know it down to the last decimal point. We just need enough quantification so that we can target public dollars in the most cost-effective way, and so that we can make the case to policymakers that there's a potential big multi-benefit win here.
0: Let's talk about another one of those solutions, wet meadows. These are areas often in higher elevations where water comes to rest and sinks into the soil and and there it stays for a while. You've written that these meadows have a vast capacity to slow down and store water, to let it sink in and spread across a wide area that can slow its path down a watershed in, in much the same way that snowpack holds water and releases it later. This is a a really exciting tactic to me because a big part of this strategy, a big part of this story has to do with one of my favorite animals, definitely my favorite rodent, the North American beaver.
1: I'm with you on that. I'm definitely a beaver believer now when I was beaver ignorant when I started this work. It's it's really getting back to knowing what native people and pretty much everybody knew until a, a couple hundred years ago when we started specializing and thinking we could control nature and that straight canals were better than meanders and and all of that where if you let nature be nature the system works better than if you try to artificially make things go in straight lines. Speed is not our friend. Slow water, as my friend Erica Guise, who wrote Water Always Wins says, is actually uh, the antidote and the solution to many, many issues. So if you let water slow down the way nature will let it do it, it yields multiple benefits for species and ultimately for us. So it becomes all the more important that we grab every tool we can to slow water down.
0: And there's no better tool for slowing water down than a beaver dam, right?
1: No, and they do all the work for you. I mean, that's the beauty of it. You know, these guys, you know, they don't you don't have to pay them by the hour. You just have to have let them let them have at it.
0: it. There is a beaver dam not far from my home. I see it often and for whatever reason it almost always makes me think about depopulation because dams like that used to be far, far more common across the West. um, I think it's estimated that the North American beaver population today is only about 10 percent of what existed before European settlement in the United States. And clearly, a lot of our water challenges come from climate change and overuse. But, you know, I just wonder, and I wonder if you ever wonder, how much of our water woes would be largely solved if we were simply able to get beavers back to the business that they were doing for so many thousands of years before we nearly hunted them out of existence.
1: Well, I'm I, I can't pull a percentage up, but we would definitely be in much better shape in many watersheds if they were there. I think there's there's no question or argument about that in general. In some locations you have some conflicts between beavers and farmers because, you know, they don't always chop, cut down or eat the tree. You want them to, and recently they'll also flood out a farmer's land, but there are ways of compensating farmers for that kind of loss uh, when you see these grander benefits across the landscape. You also have some areas where, because it's been so long, where lower watershed water users don't understand that the recreation of a meadow or a series of beaver dams, which may slow the water, isn't taking water from them they need as part of their water rights. It's slowing it down so it'll show up a little bit later, which is when it may have way more value for them and for all their neighbors. So it's all a process of us relearning what we once knew.
0: You know, I think a lot of people understand that Farmers, agriculturalists use a lot of water by necessity. There are certainly ways to reduce use, to choose crops that might make more sense for the natural environment, or to use technologies that put the water as close to the crop roots as possible so that we're being very efficient about our use. But your report points out that there are a lot of other farming practices that can help sustain a healthy watershed. Can You talk a little bit about regenerative farming and what that means for water.
1: Well, I'm happy to. I just spent the weekend in Fort Collins, Colorado at a rural West conference where we spent a lot of time on this listening to and talking with farmers who were using practices, again, practices that uh, indigenous peoples and others knew. uh, And in some cases, innovative new practices uh, where you can actually use uh, grazing in a way that stimulates greater carbon sequestration and water retention on land. There are also practices of planting cover crops and the right kind of cover crops and planting riparian strips, again, that keep things you don't want to flow into the rivers out of the rivers, but also create habitat for critters. It's just being more mindful of how soil works, how water works. You got to keep them alive, right? So you don't overgraze them. You graze them just to the point where They can uh, regenerate, then you move the cattle along. You can plant crops that add nutrients that are important to the soil so that you don't need to use as many fertilizers or pesticides. Farmers know in places that don't irrigate as heavily as many parts of the West, they know to try and retain moisture in the soil throughout the winter so that it's there as a residual bounty of moisture for the plants that they're going to crop in the spring.
0: A lot of these solutions kind of come down to, I mean, it feels like just like making sure that the environment retains its, and for lack of a better term, sponginess. Yeah?
1: Mm, Yeah, I like that. So how do we
0: get there, right? Like we started today by talking about the amazingly wet winter we've had this year. And maybe that buys us a little bit of time, but... There are a lot of very big decisions that need to be made in the very near future if we're going to avert some of the crises that are almost inevitably ahead of us without some significant changes. So is the momentum there? Are we going to see strong movement toward nature-based solutions and you know getting us back to a state of greater environmental sponginess, so to speak?
1: I like that. Well, I'm seeing encouraging signs. Of course, on any issue you talk about, everything should be faster. But again, there's a question not just of how much moisture the soil can absorb, but how much change people in the system can absorb. And so I think it's going to be very important that the bounty of funding that the Biden administration has put into nature based solutions, they issued a really interesting roadmap for nature based solutions during last November's International Climate summit that didn't get a lot of play, I think in part because the climate summit got a lot of play itself. California has put billions into the upper forest restoration and uh, tens of millions into meadow restoration in advance of having a lot of data just because common sense has told them that it would make a difference. A really good sign is that the Air Resources Board, which is tasked with the climate change mission in their, their air planning, in their 20 by 20 climate plans, uh, very explicitly said that they were going to go along on nature-based solutions, particularly in the forest management arena, understanding and acknowledging that this ecological restoration of the forest would reduce some of the climate uh, sequestration that is there right now in these overgrown forests, in exchange for preventing these much larger conflagrations due to that overgrowth, which is a really far-sighted approach, so I'm cautiously optimistic that these are catching fire—no pun intended. I got to come up with a better metaphor for that one. <laughs> um, but they're they're taking wing. How's that? Something's happening there that we want to be encouraging. But the burst of enthusiasm for beavers that's taken place in the last couple of years is nothing short of astonishing. You're just seeing a burst of activity among farmers for regenerative agriculture, both grazing and traditional farming. And now we have some subsidies for that at the federal level and the state level. So hopefully that will continue. You also have an entirely new generation of young people going into farming that want to do it in this kind of more Um, connected to the land. And then, of course, you always need to be wary of um, the complexity of it scaring away policymakers and uh, politicians
0: you clearly love policy right you're you're a policy person you know you're passionate about this stuff i can hear it but a lot of people just go oh my god you know like it's so complex this policy how do we get people excited about nature-based solutions beavers are clearly an answer (laughs) what else do we got
1: that's right they are charismatic megafauna these days which is just uh Fantastic. I think I think the way we do it is to well. I hate to say it. This is also the old political hack in me is we have to help elect people that are more sophisticated, and who care about really making um, a difference. And so I think we need to support uh, politicians who are actually good policymakers and not just good uh, one note talking point delivery machines. But that is of course a larger a larger question. I I do think that. Uh, younger generations are, they're both more competent and interested in uh, multidisciplinary issues, uh, multicultural communities. And so I have great hope that the younger generations have the uh, wherewithal to demand these kinds of changes and support them. I think part of the challenge is that uh, public service isn't valued as much in society as it might be. It certainly doesn't pay as well, but it's a, a very rewarding career if people can get the positions and can move into those. So it really takes leadership on the part of uh, gubernatorial administrations, certainly national administrations, and then try to find your colleagues in the state legislature who are willing to work across committee silos.
0: That's Felicia Marcus. She is a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program and the author of a recent policy report that describes the vast potential of nature-based solutions for protecting access to water across the West. Felicia Marcus, thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much for your interest. It was very enjoyable too. Thanks.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 10.30, and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we wanna thank you. And if you're not, why not? head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott, our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening, and go have big ideas.